Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm Benjamin Concannon-Smith, your host and history teacher at Wachusett Regional High School. Before we begin, I'd like to thank you for listening in on this podcast for the New Books Network. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. David Garland, the Arthur T. Vanderbilt Professor of Law and Sociology at New York University. We will be discussing his new book, Peculiar Institution, America's Death Penalty in an Age of Abolition, out in 2010 from Harvard Belknap and recently released in paperback in 2012. The title gives away the main question Garland tasked himself with answering, which is, why does this practice still exist in America, especially given that it has been abolished in every other Western country since the 1970s? This controversy is frequently discussed but rarely understood. In order to make sense of this phenomenon, Garland examines the history of the death penalty in the Western world, and through comparative analysis, he offers a well-researched, multifaceted argument for why the United States now stands alone in the West. His book has received numerous awards for both its academic rigor as well as its readability and accessibility, which is personally my favorite combination. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Professor Garland, welcome to New Books in American Studies. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So I want to start this interview, as I do with every interview, by asking... What brought you to this project? Why write about the American death penalty? So there's um, probably two answers to that. One is personal and one is intellectual. The the intellectual answer is that my prior work was about the sociology of punishment and control. And I described in a book, a book called The Culture of Control, that um, America and Britain and maybe some other Western countries too were developing in similar directions, that their, their criminal justice policies, their penal policies were all shifting in a certain kind of way. But that book left unanswered the question of why the USA is much more extreme and much more intense in its level of punishments. So I figured that to kind of take up that question, a nice way of doing it would be to focus on a very specific thing, the death penalty, which distinguishes what you might say America's intense punishments or its excessive punishments from the ones being compared to that. That's the intellectual reason. It kind of built on the previous books um, and specified something more distinctly. The personal reason is that I moved to the USA from Britain, from Scotland, um, about 15, 16 years ago, and I've been teaching here ever since. And anyone who teaches about crime and punishment in this country has to address the question of the death penalty, because even though it's a tiny marginal institution in terms of its numbers, you know, like every year there's maybe 70 or 80 people sentenced to death, Meanwhile, there are literally millions sentenced to imprisonment, we nonetheless, we lawyers especially, talk about the death penalty all the time. And, And I figured that I needed to get up to speed on this and really make it something that I was expert about rather than an amateur about. So that that's the background. So the subtitle of your book sort of hints at this, or directly hints at it, and you mentioned just a moment ago a glaring disparity between the United States and other Western European nations, essentially that those nations have abolished the death penalty and the United States has not. Why is it the U.S. is holding on to the practice of executing criminals, uh, citizens? Is this the case of American exceptionalism, and is that even a fair question? Well, that is a fair question. In fact, it's, it's one of the questions that the book asks and tries to answer, um, it might not be fair to, to expect me to answer it in less than 300 pages, <laughs> but I'll try. But basically, America is distinctive. Um, every country is distinctive in, in terms of having its own kind of death penalty history and death penalty abolition or death penalty reform. Um, America it has a unique pattern of development and, and use of the death penalty, but it's not exceptional um, in the way that people usually mean that phrase. I mean, the... the, the, the The term American exceptionalism has a long and uh, interesting history. Sometimes it's used 
as a kind of political self-love. So America is exceptional in the sense of being better. That's why we Americans must, you know, disparage the rest and imagine ourselves to be the city on a hill. And, and anyone who doesn't think that way, maybe the current president, is going to be criticized from the right. You know, do you believe in American exceptionalism? That's kind of a, 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 a patriotic uh, call to arms. Definitely. But sociologists and historians use the term American exceptionalism to mean something different. They mean that a pattern that is shared by most of the Western nations is not shared by the USA, that America is an exception to a general rule. Um, and the general rule might be the emergence of labor movements or uh, socialist parties or a very strong welfare state. And the idea is that all the rest have that development and the USA is an exception because it doesn't have that development. So American exception uh, and American exceptionalism is a very strong way of making a statement about America's difference. Um, and in the book, I argue against that very strong notion. What I say is that, first of all, America is not one place for this purpose. There are 50 states, the federal government. Right. Uh, we have over half the states at one time or another have abolished the death penalty, um, and currently 17 of them are abolitionists. So America is a mixed place. It's not a single place. Sure. In addition, there's nothing exceptional about the USA uh, with respect to the death penalty for most of the last 200 years. In fact, if you look at 19th century and most of 20th century developments, then America is in the vanguard, or at least some of the American states are in the vanguard of reform and abolition. What I mean by that is places like Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, Rhode Island, Maine, they abolished the death penalty in the middle of the 19th century, um, a whole century before most of the European countries did. So, you know, there was nothing laggard about that. America was like in the forefront. Sure. Um, so what I suggest is that parts of America, particularly the southern parts, are now different from the rest of the, uh, the Western developed world in retaining the death penalty. Um, and I say that that is uh, an important fact to be explained, and I try and explain that by reference to a number of things, most particularly to the structure of the American state, um, by which I mean the federal national government and the state government and local governments, and the... the uh, the distribution of powers, particularly legal legislative powers, across these different levels of government, which is really quite distinctive. There's no other country, uh, whether they're federal countries or not, that allow local governments to decide whether to have the death penalty and enforce it or not. So it seems like local control over the death penalty often leads to retention of the death penalty? Elsewhere, it's a national question. And because it's a national question elsewhere, you find that typically national elites, um, governmental elites, leaderships, have abolished the death penalty despite the fact that local people, maybe even a majority of the public, wants to retain it. And that pattern can't really be repeated in the USA because if local people want to retain it, they have a constitutional right to do so here. Right. So basically the, 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 the framing argument for why America parts of it retain the death penalty has to do with the structure of political institutions and the allocation of um, legislative powers in this country. Right. And you argue in your book, and I think you're right to point out that this is something that the United States has a deep history with. That's right. It, it, it's basically part of the original constitutional settlement that's been reproduced um, over centuries and still is a very powerful, maybe even a more powerful fact now than it was previously. It used to be the case that the, the popular will of local majorities was offset by a fairly strong powers given to the statesmen of the Senate or given to the Supreme Court or given even to the Electoral College, all of which were non-popular in the sense that they were not directly elected by the people. The president wasn't elected by the people until recently. The Senate basically wasn't elected by the people. They were supposed to be offsetting liberal institutions Right. But be counter-majoritarian. Basically, um, in order to temper the popular will, uh, in order to do what was right for the nation or right for the state or what, what was good, um, the constitutional framers imagined you have to have popular uh, democracy, but also 
counter-majoritarian liberal restraints. What I would say is that over the last century, but particularly over the last half century, the counter-majoritarian restraints, the kind of liberalism, America's liberal democracy, have weakened. Um, And so now, more than ever, if a popular majority at a local level wants to retain death penalty, say, um, they're going to be empowered to do so because uh, the political parties, the Senate, the Supreme Court even, are much less... Uh, resistant to popular will than they once were. Sure, but doesn't this sort of bring up something that's a bit ironic? I mean, uh, I'm thinking now of the the NSA story that broke recently. I think as a culture, uh, as a society, we're adamantly suspicious. Um, this is Americans. I guess I'm speaking for all Americans right now of, uh, of state power. Yet at the same time, it's local control over government that's keeping this policy and practice in place. So essentially my question is, how is it that a society that is so adamantly suspicious of state power is also willing to entrust the government with the power to put citizens to death? Um, does this not seem inherently ironic? So that, that's a very good question. It, it presents like a conundrum. How could it be the case that Americans who are suspicious of state power nonetheless give the, the state the power to kill. Um, other countries, uh, you know, the European countries particularly, are very reluctant to allow the state the death penalty precisely because they don't trust the state. How could the American anti-governmental uh, culture allow the state the power to kill, especially in the South, where you might say the most anti-government sentiment Definitely. is concentrated? So that, that's the puzzle. I would say that the, the, the resolution to that puzzle has to do with control of state power, and particularly popular control of state power when it comes to something like the death penalty. You have to remember that in, in this country, it's not the state separate from the people that imposes a death sentence. Instead, it's an elected official, a prosecutor, a district attorney, um, presenting a case before an, another elected official namely an elected state judge, and again decided in the death penalty by a jury of the people. They're the ones who decide in the death penalty. So instead of thinking about the death penalty as something the state does, in America you might better think about it as something that popular majorities and their representatives do. Um, As as one of my colleagues, Frank Zimmering, once put it, um, Americans don't think of the executioner as being a state official, they think of the executioner as a friend of the family. Right. Well, undeniably, there's there's a connection to local sentiment, and you definitely um, make another very interesting connection between the death penalty and a different part of American history. So, if you would, could you talk a bit about the connection that you see between the American death penalty and America's history with uh, racial problems such as lynching in the American South? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's, that's a theme in the book, actually. The, the, the book tries to answer the question, um, why does the, the USA or parts of it retain the death penalty? But it also asks the question, why does the death penalty still seem to many Americans, especially African Americans, to be resonant of or an echo of or maybe even a contemporary form of lynching? And that's really a puzzling Proposition. It's puzzling for two reasons. Uh, it's puzzling because why, after 40 years of Supreme Court intervention and regulation and supervision of the states and their death penalty administration, how could it be that racism still persists within the death penalty? And it does. All the studies right. that we have show that the, um, the pattern of prosecuting with a capital indictment and sentencing to death and everything is heavily skewed in terms of race. That's to say people who have black offenders who have uh, been convicted of murdering white victims are very much more likely to be charged and sentenced with the capital punishment than are uh, white perpetrators or even black, black perpetrators who've had black victims. So how could racism continue even after 40 years of Supreme Court regulation? That, that's that one puzzle. Right. Um, and, and the answer to that for me is that basically the Supreme Court, for all of its efforts to impose due process and legality, has continued to allow the death penalty to be a discretionary judgment made by a, uh, a local jury. And the local jury is typically 
in some ways shaped by the kind of prejudices and the kind of heritage that we have in this country of viewing with suspicion young black men, especially young black poor men. So that, that's, that's the first puzzle. Right. So, but my, I guess the question is, you know, the Supreme Court has been presented with these studies underscoring the systemic racism at play. Why has that not brought about any changes specifically? It, it's brought about one big change, which is that the Supreme Court since 1972 has repeatedly imposed due process safeguards and, and restrictions and regulations on state death penalties. So what I argue in the book is that the state courts, uh, the, the Supreme Court and the federal courts take very seriously the charge that the death penalty is a kind of lynching. Uh, lynching is a summary justice that doesn't involve due process, doesn't involve proper procedure. Um, it's kind of like a kangaroo court. Okay. The Supreme Court's taken every step to ensure that the, uh, the process of bringing a capital punishment charge, trying it and imposing the sentence and then carrying it out, should be governed by law. So you might say that, that much of what's happened in the last 40 years has made the death penalty look the opposite of a lynching. The death penalty now takes place um, in a very carefully staged trial. After a sentence of death is imposed, there are a whole series, usually at, uh, on average something like nine post-conviction appeals and reviews and habeas petition hearings, right. of which make the the, um, the death sentence seem as if it's carefully regulated by law. Um, and typically somebody who's sentenced to death won't be put to death until 14 or 15 years after the sentence. That looks nothing like a lynching. Sure. On the other hand, it continues to be the case that the people who are sentenced to death are young black men accused of heinous crimes that have outraged the public against white victims in southern communities. And that continues to be the lynching story. These were precisely the circumstances, you know, the allegation of an outrageous crime that alarmed and infuriated a local community who got together and insisted that they would take control and do justice in a popular justice form. That's to say lynch someone. So you have this bizarre combination of the form of legality and due process and anti-lynching and the substance that still looks like a racial act, a lynching act. Sure. Uh, and, I, you know, you already mentioned discretionary sentencing, but can you talk about uh, what victim impact evidence is and what, if anything, it has in common with lynching? Sure. So, so, so um, in a death penalty case, the trial is split into two elements. There's first of all the decision as to whether the person was guilty of the charge or not. Um, and if the person is convicted of the, um, the capital uh, offence, then the question is, should this person be sentenced to death or sentenced to life imprisonment? That The sentence of death is always, in this country, a discretionary sentence. Nobody is automatically mandated to the death penalty because of whatever crime they've committed. It's always a discretionary sentence. So the jury decides whether the sentence should be a death sentence or a life imprisonment sentence. And indeed, there's a kind of trial, a sentencing trial held in front of the jury to listen to mitigation evidence that tells you why this particular offender might have some reason for mercy, that he had a rotten social background or that he was... Um, uh, suffered from illnesses or brain injuries or whatever at the time, and aggravating evidence, evidence that says, look, this person in fact is dangerous, this person will be violent, this person has a terrible you know, history of criminal conduct. So in that sentencing trial, when the jury is deciding whether to sentence the person to death or not, the possibility of relatives of the, the murdered deceased person these relatives are now able to present evidence about their suffering, what kind of impact on them the murder has had. So if, if for example, the children or the, the spouses or the, the grandparents of a murdered victim wants to come and present to the jury evidence about how their lives have been ruined by the murder, then that's something that the jury will now listen to. Right. 
in deciding whether or not to impose a death sentence. The, 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 the Supreme Court, when first um, presented with the question, is it constitutionally acceptable to allow victims, uh, victims' relatives in this case, to present victim impact evidence at sentencing, they at first said no because it would be emotionally inflaming for the jury to listen to such uh, evidence being presented. Later, in Payne versus Tennessee in 1991, mm-hmm. the Supreme Court changed its mind. They said, actually, the uh, the jury should be allowed to hear victim impact statements. After all, they hear mitigating evidence. They should also hear evidence about the harm that's been caused. So that's what victim impact statements are. And most people believe um, that the presentation of victim impact statements are liable to make a death penalty decision more likely. Well, I would say so. I mean, um, just, I mean, mitigation evidence is, is evidence, actual evidence, whereas victim impact is just to appeal to the emotion of the jury, is it not? I mean, there's a... Uh, I would say mitigation evidence and aggravation evidence are both about appealing to the, 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 uh, the emotional feelings of the jury. That basically mitigation is mostly trying to engender some kind of uh, feeling of fellowship or recognition or sympathy with the, the accused, with the, the, the convicted offender. And aggravation is an attempt to show this person is alien and dangerous and violent and irredeemable. So since it's a jury of lay people making their mind up, in the end, it's about their hearts as well as their minds and how they feel. So um, the, the argument about emotion cuts both ways. The aggravators and the mitigators are both emotional. Well, I suppose that's true, um, how they're supposed to cancel each other out. But don't you think it's still a bit more skewed towards a death sentence when you have death-qualified jurors hearing these cases? I mean, can you talk a bit about what a death-qualified jury is? So, again, this is one of these only-in-America concepts. Uh, I think people abroad would be a little appalled by this. Um, A major question in capital cases is who is going to serve on the jury? Historically, uh, that was a big, a big question because black, uh, African Americans, blacks, uh, Latinos were typically excluded from jury service. Right. And so you would have all white juries um, convicting and sentencing to death black perpetrators. That was regarded, of course, as a, as a, uh, a violation of constitutional rights. And so the, the composition of the jury has always been something that's been carefully considered by the federal courts. Early on in the process... In, in the history of the death penalty, states began to exclude potential jurors who had a moral objection, who had scruples about imposing death sentences. Um, at the time this happened, the death penalty was automatic. It was a mandatory sentence for murder. And so if you were a juror or a potential juror who had a religious objection, say, to the death penalty, then you would be excused from that jury. Um, And in fact, the prosecution wouldn't want you on that jury because you might be one of these holdouts who would say, you know, we can't bring in a verdict because I object to the death penalty. So the idea of death qualifying is the procedure that occurs in selecting a jury. And today it occurs in the following way. People are asked, do you have objections to the death penalty? Do you have major qualms about the death penalty? Would you find it difficult to impose a death penalty? And if the people in the jury uh, panel say, yes, I would have some difficulty because I have some questions about it, then they can be excluded from the jury and they are excluded from the jury. A consequence of that is that by and large, capital juries end up being predominantly male and predominantly white for the simple reason that more African-Americans and Latinos and more women have concerns and objections about the the, the death penalty than do whites and males. Death-qualified juries end up looking like male-white juries. And the Supreme Court again says that that's a perfectly constitutional, valid procedure in order to allow the state to carry out its death penalties, and that's the situation that we have. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, so if we could for a moment turn back to the history, it seems like we're focusing a lot on the now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, let's turn towards the history of the practice. I mean, we've all seen movies like Braveheart, not to bring up the Scottish thing, but um, and the gruesome executions that took place. Um, um, so how have we arrived here where we are now? Lethal injections, you know, years after um, sentencing. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that's a very long developmental process, which is very interesting in my view. And, and there's a couple of chapters in the book that discuss this. But essentially, you're, you're right. What's happened over centuries of time is that um, an execution, which was once public, spectacular, intensely cruel and involving bodily torments and, and suffering and pain, has gradually over time been removed from the public gaze, put behind jail yard walls at first, now eventually moved into uh, an execution cell where there's, there's no members of the public present apart from a few witnesses. It's been made to be, over time, increasingly less um, intentionally painful, so the movement from... Uh, executions by beheading or by uh, burning at the stake were replaced by hanging and then eventually by electric chairs and gas chambers and now lethal injections. The whole process being an attempt to render the state's punishment um, in some way civilized, to make it seem like it's not barbaric and not savage, that it's not intentionally cruel, that increasingly, instead of killing the person what the state's doing is simply terminating their right to live. So what you see is something like the lethal injection, which is, I would say, very close to the, the kind of cultural ideal that I'm describing here. It's the, 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 the perfect execution in modern humanitarian culture would be just making the death, the death sentence person disappear. Right. Since we can't do that, the lethal injection makes him die but without the signs of bleeding or bruising, uh, noise, smells, torments, it's basically designed to render the, the, the death penalty in a kind of aesthetically acceptable, civilized mode. Sure. That, 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 that's been the American aspiration for, for a long time, to move from um, egregious suffering on the scaffold to the humanitarian killing. But doesn't, does that also sort of betray the uses and, and purpose of the death penalty as it was originally intended? So there's a, there's a lot going on in these changes. One, one of the things that certainly happens is if you have a lethal injection intended to make capital punishment, state killing, look, look especially like, look more or less like euthanasia, a kind of medical procedure that's careful to, you know, uh, be gentle with the patient, then you undermine retributive, punitive aspect. You're killing someone, but you're trying to kill them in a way that seems, I don't know, gentle and careful and compassionate, which is a kind of very mixed message. Um, and the question is, how did we get there? Well, originally, as you say, um, or in the early period of the, the, the modern state, the execution served a very different kind of function. The execution was a way for 16th and 17th century uh, rulers to display their sovereign power and essentially to vanquish their enemies before a viewing public. And so they did that in ways that were vividly cruel and spectacular and kind of awesome in the original sense of that term. Today, I would say, the death penalty has you know, no such function. The death penalty is, I would say, a kind of unnecessary um, penalty which is still around because there's some popular support for it, not because there's any government that will, you know, uh, be destabilized if it doesn't kill criminal offenders. So we have this kind of ambivalence about what the death penalty is. And undoubtedly, a state killing a citizen in a, in a, a non-necessary context. I mean, basically, you could have life imprisonment without parole. That's what most of the, uh, the criminal justice system does most of the time. A state killing a citizen is a violation of most of our political culture um, principles. Basically, you know, the state ought to be restrained. It ought to be respectful. It ought to be concerned with the, the, the health and happiness and welfare of the population. Here it is killing a citizen. So today we do this in a way which I think is hesitant and ambivalent and really in a way self-defeating because as most um, onlookers who really know about the death penalty would say, despite what it promises, capital punishment really does not deliver much in the way of 
retribution or victim satisfaction. What it delivers instead is an agonizingly long period of decades during which the murderer is constantly uh, challenging a sentence, is probably, in two-thirds of the cases, going to have a sentence overturned, and in the end, that sentence is merely that, a kind of statement, and not actually a killing. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, you sort of were hinting at the data that doesn't really support the practice. Um, specifically, um, so it's more expensive to kill people, is that right, um, than it is to imprison them for life? That, that seems counterintuitive, um, since, you know, you can kill somebody for, for next to nothing and it would be over and done with next to nothing. <laughs> sure. But in, in, in the USA, given the constitutional constraints that surround capital punishment, um, and what I described before as the um, the more or less endless process of appeal and review um, that occurs post-conviction, because lawyers cost money, and particularly because courts cost money, um, it's very expensive to stage a capital punishment trial and sentence and execution. I mean, it, that that's really a matter of decades of multiple courts and lawyers being engaged in trial and appellate and post-conviction processes, all of which are very expensive. So compared to um, having someone languish in prison, a prison that's already been built and you have, you know, one additional person added to it, the prison sentence, even though it's for life, is much less expensive than right. a capital undertaking, that's for sure. Right. Um, and so I guess what I was trying to get at is if you sort of divorce the moral argument uh, that people might use for capital punishment, if you d- divorce uh, the morality from it and you just look at the statistics you, and you see, well, it's much more expensive, it's, it's much cheaper to imprison somebody for life without parole, you know, it, it doesn't um, actually deter criminals from recidivism or, or you know, committing other crimes. What are its uses? Right. So that's a good question. The, 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 and implicit in the question is this, that there are two different things that we need to sort out. One is our imagination and our kind of image or, or, or our cultural vision of what the death penalty is. And on the other hand, the actual practice of death penalties as they occur today in the USA. The, the latter, the actual practice, is what I describe in the book. And it turns out that you know, most death penalties, if they're imposed, um, are subsequently overturned on appeal. And even the, 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 the rare ones that aren't overturned on appeal, it would take 14 or 15 years on average to carry out a death sentence. Most people who are on death row die of natural causes, not all execution. So the real death penalty is a kind of a disappointing, self-defeating, counterproductive, expensive undertaking that, that exists not for criminal justice reasons, but for political and cultural ones. And that, of course, gets you on to the other death penalty, the imaginary death penalty, the kind of image of the death penalty people have. And that's very, very powerful in our imaginations. It's very attractive and and in in lots of ways fascinating um, and compelling, not least for the culture industry, for the media, for politicians. The, the, The idea of death penalty is a very compelling, powerful one. Um, And I would say that one of the reasons the death penalty persists in this country is that a variety of people make uses of the idea or the threat or the the prospect of a death sentence. Um, And I, I describe in the book a variety of people and a variety of groups and the different ways that they do it. That ranges from the very practical. So, for example, a prosecutor who's bringing a death penalty case will actually have a better chance of winning the case because the jury gets to be death-qualified. Death-qualified juries are more pro-prosecution and pro-conviction. There's a better chance of a guilty verdict for the outcome. Moreover, the prosecutor will stand to gain something um, in his or her subsequent political career if they succeed in getting a death sentence for an unpopular uh, local murderer. So that's a use that's very practical and very vivid. But you might say that at the other end of things... Um, the the media, say, find the death penalty very useful, very attractive. Why is that? Because if you have um, a report of a crime and the report of the crime is trying to describe how significant, how intense, how important this is, to be able to say that the person faces a death penalty 
and indeed later on to be able to report on will the jury bring in a death verdict or not right. to describe the, the scene in the courtroom and the expression on the witnesses' faces or the expression on the accused's face when he or is, is or is not sentenced to death. All of that is a very, way of intensifying the drama and indeed the kind of the, the morality play surrounding a crime and its punishment. If without the death penalty you were to try and do this, you'd be talking about, well, the person faces a lengthy sentence of imprisonment. Um, well, so does everyone right. who's charged with a, felon in this, a felony in this country. I mean, in the USA, lengthy sentences of imprisonment are standardly issued. To, to distinguish a case as being especially egregious or notable or visible, you know, the death penalty is very useful in this way. It, tells a, it makes something dramatic, even if in the end the sentence will be converted, like everything else, into another lengthy prison sentence. Sure. And, and it almost doesn't even matter who the um, the convict is. Is that right? I mean, if you think about it for, for sensational purposes, uh, if you're talking about the media, you know, if it's somebody um, like you use the example, um, let me find it here, Danny Rowling, the Danny Rowling case, mm-hmm. like that's an exemplary case of what quote unquote the death penalty is supposed to look like in America. Mm-hmm. But if you flip the coin and you you remember the Troy Davis case of just uh, what 2011. Um, that was sensationalistic for another reason, and that was because people questioned um, that trial, and you know it was sort of up in the air whether or not he was going to be put to death, and there was a lot of um, negative reaction to the death penalty around that case. So it sort of doesn't really matter what the case is all about. As long as it's a death penalty case, it's going to generate this media story. Is that right? Well, it, I think it's the case that, that, that for human beings anywhere, for human beings today in the USA, the, the, the notion of death, the, the prospect of, of death, and the prospect particularly of a death that's deliberately imposed with public backing um, and undertaken with a kind of uh, the, the precise intentionality and deliberateness of a state killing, that is a really compelling and fascinating and, and repulsive idea. So whenever we begin to talk about death, that there's an intensification of meaning and interest and attention. And I think that that's entirely understandable and entirely appropriate. And I also think that when we're considering um, murder cases, when after all someone has been already put to death by a criminal offender, um, then it's entirely understandable that we respond to this illegitimate death, this criminal death, by thinking whether or not maybe um, a response by the, the, the courts, by the state, by the people and gives like for like and imposes death there too. That's an understandable moral sense. And it's one that, you know, human history is really organized around for millennia. So it's not surprising that people are intensely, dramatically interested in the question of death. Um, The the notion that it is um, therefore useful and therefore something that... um, the cultural industry or politicians or the media will uh, deal with and employ. There's nothing really venal about that. I mean, it, it, it's exactly what you would expect. Indeed, there's a, there's a serious moral argument that would say the only appropriate response to a deliberate, cruel murder would be indeed to impose the death penalty. That, that's not an absurd idea. It just turns out that, that it produces lots of contradictions and lots of difficulties, not just in administering this death penalty. First of all, you have to entrust this killing to a state. We've discussed all the problems with that. Secondly, you have to get the um, the prosecution and conviction accurate. We have problems of innocence and people who are wrongly convicted. And thirdly, you have the problem of arbitrariness. Why is it that this person, maybe this poor black male, is sentenced to death, and this other person, maybe this well-represented, rich uh, white male is not sentenced to death. You have all the difficulties of discrimination. So, sure. for all these reasons, the, the, the kind of the serious moral argument that perhaps a death penalty could sometimes be justified right. seems to be undermined from most other nations in the developed world by the counter arguments. 
Um, I guess that brings me to the next point I want to talk about, which is that it seems that in the 1960s, the United States was very close to possibly abolishing the death penalty. Could you talk about that and, and why that didn't happen? Right. So that, that's a big part of the, the, the story that tells. Basically, um, over a long period of time, really from the, the late 18th century onwards, death penalties were used less and less and, and used in more and more restricted strained ways for fewer kinds of offences and offenders. Um, and indeed, by the middle of the 20th century, many countries were beginning to consider abolition, and America was one of them. Um, by that time, by the 1960s, uh, a number of states had already abolished the death penalty, and many of them were considering doing so. Up until that point, the Supreme Court had never um, really been asked to discuss the constitutionality of the death penalty as such. The death penalty was always assumed to be constitutionally permitted. Um, It's mentioned uh, obliquely by reference in the the Bill of Rights. It had been um, a standard punishment of the court in the USA ever since the country was formed. So the idea it might be unconstitutional was really not taken seriously. Uh, there, there were one or two cases, for example, when New York began to use the electric chair or when Utah began to use a firing squad um, or indeed when Louisiana wanted to execute someone twice because it didn't work well the first time. Right. Um, the Supreme Court was asked about these constitutional questions and indeed in each case upheld the death penalty. In the 1960s, in the context of the civil rights movement, the, um, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People and its Legal Defense Fund brought cases to the Supreme Court claiming that in the South, the racist and sometimes summary prosecution and conviction of African Americans was one more example of Jim Crow racism. And exactly what the civil rights movement was was trying to undo. And in in a way, um, for example, capital rape was still a crime in the South in the 1960s. That's to say you could be charged and sentenced to death and executed for the rape of um, a woman. The only people that were ever charged with capital rape were black offenders who allegedly had killed, had raped white women. So this was was a terrifically uh, scandalous example of... Jim Crow justice, and the civil rights movement challenged it. Once that challenge began to be heard by the Supreme Court, then it was generalized to include all of the death penalty cases, because it turned out on close inspection, um, the death penalty tended to be administered in ways that were arbitrary and were discriminatory and were racist. And and indeed, um, there's a whole variety of legal arguments brought against it. And at first, the court was reluctant to hear them, but over the 1960s and up to 1972, it became increasingly sympathetic to these claims. And in 1972, in the landmark case of Furman versus Georgia, a majority of the court, five of the justices, um, decided that as administered at that point in time, all of the American states' death penalties were unconstitutional. They were unconstitutional because they were being administered in arbitrary ways that that denied due process to defendants, and they were cruel and unusual in violation of the Eighth Amendment. So um, in 1972, as a result of a Supreme Court decision, all of the American states, there were something like 40 states that had the death penalty, all of their statutes were voided. Hmm. Now that had occurred in 1972, as I said, as part of the civil rights challenge to racist criminal justice, especially in the South. Right. However, 1972 was not an auspicious year for the civil rights movement. In fact, by the time the Furman Court made its decision, there was really already a backlash in progress against the civil rights movement, and there was a lot more concern with street disorder, with riots, and particularly with rising murder rates and crime rates. So very quickly after the Supreme Court voided all of the statutes, states began to legislate new, improved capital statutes. Right. And remarkably, you know how difficult it is to pass legislation in this country. (laughs) Right. Remarkably, within two years, 35 states had passed new death sentence laws. 
Sure. So the reaction to Furman, in, in, in a, almost in a way, made it stronger, made the death penalty stronger. It was very widespread. It mobilized the pro-death penalty movement. Um, two-thirds of the states passed new capital statutes. So the Supreme Court was now faced with a dilemma. Basically, it had said that the previously existing uh, capital punishment laws were arbitrary and cruel and unusual. What did they think of the new laws, which were already being used to sentence people to death in the uncertainty of the constitutional status of the death penalty? So in 1976, in a case called Gregg versus Georgia, and in a series of companion cases, the Supreme Court heard challenges to the new improved death penalty statutes, in particular the one in, in Georgia. And this time, instead of looking at cases that involved black defendants who had murdered or raped white victims and who, it, it would appear, were the victims of civil rights abuses, in the 1976 Gregg v. Georgia case, and the, the other cases decided with it, the defendants were all white. Mm-hmm. The cases looked exactly like law and order cases and not at all like civil rights cases. Right. Um, and basically what the court said was, at least in, in, in uh, with respect to a variety of the new statutes, that this, the, the capital punishment um, process, as now defined, with its new safeguards, with, with new um, trial arrangements, with new appeal arrangements, with new guidance to the jurors, that that was indeed constitutional. So basically, in 1976, the Supreme Court um, permitted the states to proceed with capital punishment, having four years before refused them that permission. So basically, the the, uh, the trajectory of the USA at that point diverged from the rest of the Western industrial democracies because in the 1970s, European countries had mostly abolished the death penalty. France was one of the last holdouts. France abolished it finally in 1981. And very soon after that, the European Union um, made it essentially uh, prohibited all of its members from using the death penalty and made it a condition of entry into the European Union to be abolitionists. So you see this divergence really from 1976 onwards. America becomes committed to continuing with the death penalty. And in the 1980s and especially the 1990s became more frequently uh, executing death sentences. In the law and order 1990s, it was really a a very popular political position to be pro-death penalty. Meanwhile, in Europe, and indeed in in Canada and Australia and New Zealand and South Africa, the death penalty became a human rights violation. Hmm. So over the last 30 or 40 years, the, the comparison between America and the rest of the West becomes more and more like a divergence. Right. Hence the assumption that America looks exceptional and America is different and maybe America is more, I don't know, punitive or racist or vigilante. Or <laughs> right. um, but essentially, it could have all been different. Right. If, if the Supreme Court in 1972 had decided, not on the basis of administration, you know, the, 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 the statutes were being administered in um, unconstitutional ways, but instead said the death sentence as such has become unconstitutional. Then, um, whatever the states had done, the the court could have simply persisted with this finding. Instead, the the, the court basically said, um, you mustn't have death penalties that look like lynchings, but if you fix your death penalties and make them seem less summary and less obviously racist, then we will defer to the people's judgment at the local level. And that's really where we are today, that that basically uh, the Supreme Court has essentially said, look, um, it's a democratic right of local majorities to have and to impose death sentences so long as they obey the due process requirements of law. So essentially it, it was possible for the Supreme Court to abolish the death penalty, but now it almost seems like it would have to be done by Congress if anything was, was to actually happen. Well, right now the, the, there's no, proce- no prospect at all of Congress or indeed the Supreme Court as currently um, constituted with the, the, the nine justices that are there abolishing the death penalty. However, since I published the book um, in 2010, there's actually been a fairly remarkable pattern of change. Um, 
I think in 2010, there were already something like 14 or 15 abolitionist states. Since that time, there's been three or four more added. Um, and in a kind of remarkable process, states in the north, the northeast, and in, in other parts of the country outside the south, states like New Jersey and Connecticut and New Mexico and Illinois, have begun to abolish the death penalties by... Um, uh, by a political process, that, that their own state legislatures have given up the death penalty, which is kind of remarkable and very different to the 1990s scene, where no elected politician would dream of taking a risk on the kind of unpopular move of being against the death penalty. What happened in New Jersey, New Mexico, and Illinois, and Connecticut is these were states, typical for non-Southern states, that had the death penalty on the books, and sometimes sentenced people to death, but actually never carried out executions. Right. So they had a kind of symbolic death penalty. Um, and they found that this was a very expensive symbol, <laughs> yeah. and, and one that was costing you know, taxpayers literally millions of dollars every case to produce in the end just this very um, unsatisfactory, frustrating outcome. So John Corzine, when he was governor, an outgoing legislature in New Jersey, began the pattern, and they brought in an abolitionist um, bill. They repealed the death penalty, and there wasn't a revolution. There wasn't an upheaval. People in New Jersey knew that actually they didn't really have the death penalty anyway. They just had the death penalty on the books, right. which wasn't. The, so you now have a pattern where I think currently we have 17 states have abolished. I could imagine four or five or even eight or nine more states, again, outside the South, over the next 10 years or so going in the same direction, uh, giving up a death penalty that really is a kind of meaningless gesture. If we got to a situation where 25 or 26 states had abolished and the death penalty looked more and more like a minority regional pursuit that was I, uh, that was in contrast or, or um, at odds with the evolving standards of the nation, mm-hmm. then I could imagine the Supreme Court in 10 or 15 years' time saying, actually, this is a problematic practice. The rest of the, the developed, developed world has given it up. Most of the American states have given it up. It's time to render it unconstitutional and recognize that it can't really be governed by law because in the end it's a discretionary decision by local prosecutors and elected judges and jurors. So for that reason, it can't really be made to be um, subject to law. That That's my best guess about how American abolition will occur. It will occur, first of all, in more of the states. That will eventually become a majority pattern across the states. And the Supreme Court will belatedly, instead of leading, it will follow and d- declare the uh, the penalty unconstitutional as such. Well, thank you, Dr. Garland. I mean, this was great. Um, That about rounds out our time. So once again, for the listeners, um, we've been discussing Dr. Garland's new book, The Peculiar Institution, America's Death Penalty in the Age of Abolition, out in 2010, but now out in paperback recently. Um, So pick it up. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Lee.